Let us give our attention to God's Word this morning. We're going to be looking at Job chapter 34, the entire chapter, verses 1 through 37. It's on page 440 of the ESV Pew Bibles. So Job chapter 34. But first let's go to the Lord Prayer. Heavenly Father, we ask for your blessing to accompany the reading and proclamation of your word this morning. We ask for the illuminating power of your Holy Spirit to open our eyes to see the true meaning of this passage and how we can best apply it to our life. Father, we confess our dependency upon you and upon your word. And we ask you to feed us this morning. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We are in that time of year when people get the urge to escape the winter weather of northern Illinois. This is the time of year where people start to make plans to go to somewhere that's a little warmer, like Florida. And so if there is a business trip that, that a company is organizing, they might as well organize it down in Florida in the middle of February or January. Or if you have to have continuing ed for your, for your job, sometimes it's just a lot easier to go down and take the class that's in Florida. Or if, if families are taking that, that trip together in, in the winter, they might go to Florida. And of course, there's all the spring breakers that, that head down to Florida as well. So if you have the means, this is the time to escape the winter cold. And the ability to escape something usually gives us this sense of being a little more in control and a little more free. Uh, if things get too bad in northern Illinois, we can always escape to Florida. Or if, if things get too bad at, at work, you could always escape and, and take another job. Or if your daily routine seems something that you want to break out of, or you're, you're tired of eating the same thing for breakfast every morning, you can escape and, and eat something different, if you'd like. Kind of helps us think that we're, we're in control. Ford even has a vehicle named Escape. The name consents this, uh, conveys this sense of freedom and, and uh, control. If there's something you want to get away from, you can just climb into this vehicle and escape from whatever it is you're trying to get away from. So just like seeing how escape provides us with a sense of control and, and freedom, being told that there is no escape from something usually has the opposite effect. For example, if you were told there is no escaping the winter weather in Illinois, there is no escaping your job ever, or there is no escaping your daily routine, you have to continue doing the same thing over and over for the rest of your life. That would not be a good feeling. In fact, being told there is no escape is usually something that's told to inmates as a way to deter them from attempting to escape prison. It's usually a negative. But in chapter 34, Elihu tells us that Job is, uh, Job of course is wrestling with, with all these questions, but Elihu tells Job there is no escape from the justice of God. And he's right. There is no escape from God's justice. But as we will see, God's justice is the last thing we want to escape from or alter. 
So most of the message this morning is going to be a verse-by-verse walkthrough, but towards the end we're going to be looking at how this passage points to some evangelistic implications, but we're also going to focus in on God's timing, the timing of God's justice, and why that's so important. So let's take a look at the chapter in its entirety, chapter 34, starting at verse 1. Then Elihu answered and said, Hear my words, you wise men, and give ear to me, you who know. For the ear tests words as the palate tests food. Let us choose what is right. Let us know among ourselves what is good. For Job has said, I am in the right, and God has taken away my right. In spite of my right, I am counted a liar. My wound is incurable, though I am without transgression. What man is like Job, who drinks up scoffing like water, who travels in company with evildoers and walks with wicked men? For he has said, It profits a man nothing that he should take delight in God. Therefore hear me, you men of understanding, far be it from God that he should do wickedness, from the Almighty that he should do wrong. For according to the work of man he will repay him, and according to his ways he will make it befall him. Of a truth, God will not do wickedly, and the Almighty will not pervert justice. Who gave him charge over the earth, and who laid on him the whole world? If he should set his heart to it, and gather to himself his spirit and his breath, all flesh would perish together, and man would return to dust. If you have understanding, hear this, listen to what I say. Shall one who hates justice govern? Will you condemn him who is righteous and mighty, who says to a king, worthless one, and to nobles, wicked man, who shows no partiality to princes, no regard, nor regards the rich more than the poor, for they are all the work of his hands. In a moment they die, at midnight the people are shaken and pass away, and the mighty are taken away by no human hand. For his eyes are on the ways of man, and he sees all his steps. There is no gloom or deep darkness where evildoers may hide themselves. For God has no need to consider a man further that he should go before God in judgment. He shatters the mighty without investigation and sets others in their place. Thus, knowing their works, he overturns them in the night, and they are crushed. He strikes them for their wickedness in a place for all to see, because they turned aside from following him and had no regard for any of his ways, so that they caused the cry of the poor to come to him, and he heard the cry of the afflicted. When he is quiet, who can condemn? When he hides his face, who can behold him, whether it be a nation or a man, that a godless man should not reign, that he should not ensnare the people? For has anyone said to God, I have borne punishment, I will not offend any more, teach me what I do not see, if I have done iniquity, I will do it no more? Will you then make repayment to suit you, because you reject it? For you must choose, and not I. Therefore declare what you know. Men of understanding will say to me, and the wise man who hears me will say, Job speaks without knowledge, his words are without insight. Would that Job were tried to the end, because he answers like wicked men. For he adds rebellion to his sin, he claps his hands among us, and multiplies his words against God. The first section we're going to call, let's, let's think about this. Elihu, at, verses, at the beginning of this first section, 1 through 4, he's addressing everyone, Job and his three friends, and he calls them wise men and you who know. That's sarcasm. That's sarcasm. The ear tests words and the palate tastes food. He's saying, I want you to consider and think about what Job has said. 
We've all heard him, but I want us to evaluate Job's words. Let us choose what is right, what is good, specifically about whether or not God is just. That's what this chapter is about. If you remember last week, we talked about our old high school English teachers who taught us how to write papers. And one of the processes of writing a good paper is an outline. And we said Roman numeral one, that's the big heading, and then the subpoints underneath, capital letter A, capital letter B. So last week we looked at the, the title, God is Greater Than Man. That's, that's a line who's Roman numeral number one. And then underneath it, A, God is not silent. We looked at that last week. That was chapter 33. And then B, God is not unjust. That's where he's going with chapter 34. So it's helpful, I think, to see that kind of overview outline of where Elihu is going with all these speeches. So we're on capital letter B. God is not unjust. So Elihu says, let's think about this. Job has said, I am in the right, and God has taken away my right. So Elihu is summarizing the words of Job that he's spoken thus far in chapters 3 through 31. And this is accurate. Job had said he was right. Remember, that was part of Job's uh, message throughout the entire book was, I am a righteous man. I do not deserve this punishment. I do not deserve this suffering. This doesn't seem right to me. And that's why he longed for his day in court. He wanted to be able to present his case. And he knew that if everything was fair, that it would turn out that he would be uh, acquitted. And unfortunately, that would mean that God had made a mistake. And that's the problem that Elihu has with Job, that he implied that God's justice was not right, that God made a mistake, that God somehow had to show up and defend his actions. So Job believed that God had taken away his right, or denied him justice. That's what that phrase means, taken away my right. He's denied me justice. Job 27.2, as God lives, who has taken away my right. Yes, he had said that. So as Elihu is, is calling everyone to evaluate what Job said, that's what he's pointing to. And then in verse 6, he's still summarizing Job's speeches. He says, uh, Job said that my wound is incurable, though I'm without transgression. Yes, Job had said that. Job had charged God with being unjust to, to bring this incurable, or so he thought, wound against him, even though he didn't deserve it. And then verses 7 and 8, a stinging rebuke. What man is like Job who drinks up, drinks up scoffing like water? He says, Job is taking part in or drinking up or the, the scoffing or the, the mocking or the, the, the scorn, the negative speech that his friends have been participating in. Now, Job was not agreeing with his three friends. Remember, Job never said, yeah, you guys are right, I probably deserve this. No, he never agreed with that. But he is now picking up on their negativity. As he lamented before God, he, he starts to, to cross some lines and charge God with being unjust. And then in verse 9, here's the basis for Elihu's rebuke against Job. For he, Job, had said, it profits a man nothing that he should take delight in God. And Job had made statements like that. Verse, uh, Job 9.22, he destroys both the blameless and the wicked. This, this was Job throwing his hands up in the air and saying, you know what, nothing matters anymore. It doesn't matter how I've lived or how I've walked faithfully before God. He just treats everybody the same. So why bother? That was Job's attitude at that point. If that was true, 
if it didn't matter, or if it doesn't matter how anyone lives before God, if all people receive the same judgment from God, then that would make God unjust. Listen and I will teach you. That's what the next section is. Therefore hear me, you men of understanding. Far be it from God that he should do wickedness, and from the Almighty that he should do, no, do wrong. Elihu will not put up with anyone, including Job, that makes a false accusation and charges God with being unjust. He's just not going to put up with it. God's justice is perfect. There's no escape from God's perfect justice. And so he uses this language that says, no way, that's not happening. Now, if you recall from the New Testament, you remember the Apostle Paul, as he writes, every once in a while he slips in this phrase, by no means. Every once in a while he'll throw that in. For example, uh, Romans 9, Paul's describing how God favored Jacob and not Esau and his election. And then his, he asks the question, is there any injustice on God's part? And he answers by saying, by no means. It's almost like he's slamming his fist down on the desk and should be a couple exclamation points after what he says. By no means. Elihu is defending God's honor and character with, in a way that's similar to Paul. He says, far be it. How can you even suggest such a thing? God is God. There is no way that he could be unjust. It's impossible. I remember sitting in a classroom, in a seminary class, not Gordon-Conwell, not Reformed Theological Seminary, a different seminary, and one of the students there who was generally kind of loud and boisterous, uh, when the discussion was covering election, they spoke up, and in class they said, I can't believe in a God who would elect some for salvation and not others. And then they added, and if not everybody can be saved, then I don't want to be saved either. And they made this big gesture with their hands. And I remember thinking, oh no. The first thing I thought was, you're in the wrong place. This is a Reformed seminary and you obviously don't believe in Reformed doctrine. But the second thing I thought was, I don't think that person's saved. Based on other things they said, but specifically on that. If you can just flippantly throw away your salvation and say, well, if I don't get the God that I want, then I don't want to be saved. No, I don't think a person who genuinely understands the forgiveness of sins would make a statement like that and would say, it doesn't matter if I'm saved or not. By no means, by no means is God unjust and by no means is his justice and his election anything but perfect. Verses 11 through 15, these are all verses that speak to God's perfect justice, his character, his being. According to the work of man, he will repay him, and according to his ways, he will make it befall him. Now remember back in uh, chapter 32, when we were determining if Elihu was a good guy or a bad guy, and we said, this is going to make a big difference in how we understand the Elihu passages, because it's going to affect how we uh, understand and how we view what he says. This is one of those verses. If, if we think Elihu is a bad guy, then this verse looks a lot like what Job's three friends have been saying. Look at that. It says, according to the work of man, he will repay him, and according to his ways, he will make it befall him. Doesn't that sound an awful lot 
like what his three friends were saying. The difference is the three friends were saying that that happens in this lifetime. That if you, could, if you look at someone and bad things are happening to them, well, that means somewhere along the way they did something very evil. That's not what Elihu is saying. Elihu is a good guy. And he's talking about God's final justice, his ultimate justice. Look at the emphasis in verse 12. Of a truth, God will not do wickedly. The Almighty will not pervert justice. So he's not talking about good things happen to good people or some kind of weird karma type of thinking. He's talking about God's unassailable character and how it is incomprehensible for God not to execute perfect justice in all things. Verse 13, who, who gave him charge over the earth? And who laid on him the whole world? Of course, the answer is no one. God is not subordinate to someone. God, God is not a, a manager that has to report to some kind of supervisor that put him in charge over the world. No, God created the world. God's in charge. Verse 14, if he should set his heart to gather to himself his spirit and his breath, all flesh would perish together, all men would return to dust. This is saying all people are ultimately dependent upon God. God breathed into Adam's nostrils the breath of life. And Elihu is saying if God withdrew his breath of life, everyone would die. God sustains all life by his upheld providential hand. Or, go back to Roman number one, God is greater than man. The next section is elaborating God, on God's just nature, 16 through 17. Uh, the first part was directed to everyone. Now, Elihu is talking to Job. He's zeroing in. If you have understanding, hear this. Job, listen to what I say. Shall one who hates justice govern? He's pointing out the absurdity of, of God being unjust. Do you really think God, who is in charge of the universe, is unjust? Is that your position, Job? You're going you're to run with that? Are you really going to attack the righteousness and power of God? Are you sure? You might want to rethink that. 18 through 20, God shows no partiality. God is not impressed with wealth or positions of power. God is not afraid to call it like he sees it. God is impartial in his judgment. God says, worthless one, right to the king's face. He speaks wicked man to the noble, rich and poor. It doesn't matter with God. He's perfectly just. He shows no partiality. God is perfectly capable of taking the life of anyone, anytime. Does not have a problem with that. If it aligns with his purposes. Verses 21 through 24, God's justice is perfect. Unlike human justice, it says, His eyes are on the ways of man and he sees all his steps. God sees everything. He's reminding Job. God knows everything. God is the only one capable of delivering perfect justice because he's the only one that has all the information. Evildoers cannot hide themselves from God because God sees everything. There are no, there's no escape from God's perfect justice. There is no escape from his all-knowing eyes. God has no need to consider a man further. God does not need time to discover and collect evidence. When a crime is committed, God does not need a forensics team to go over a dust for prints or look for clues or talk to witnesses. God has perfect knowledge at all times. He has no need for that. 
He is, does not have to consider a man farther, further. He shatters the mighty without investigation. He doesn't need a trial. He doesn't need a prosecutor and a defender. He doesn't need to weigh the evidence and think about it. He knows it all. So he can deliver perfect justice. Verse 25, thus knowing their works, he overturns them in the night, and they are crushed. Because God knows everything, when he does act, it's perfect. It's perfect. He strikes them with their wickedness in a place for all to see. When God executes his perfect and final justice, it will be public for all to see. There are multiple New Testament verses that talk about the, the final judgment of God being an act of revealing, or a time of revealing, where all things come to light. Revelation tells us that unbelievers, great and small, are judged according to what they have done. And verse 26 is talking about the wicked, as is 27, those that have turned aside from following him and had no regard for any of his ways. And then 28 gives examples of the victims of the, of the wicked crying out. So these verses are talking about God's final justice, how he will hold sinners to account perfectly, perfect justice for all sin, and there is no escape. Now as believers, we know that this world is not all there is. We understand that there is a final judgment coming, there is a reckoning, we understand that God will execute perfect justice in his time, so we don't have to participate in vigilante justice. We don't have to take the law into our own hands. We don't have to pay people back for what they've done to us. We can trust God to handle that. The Bible says, vengeance is mine, says the Lord. I will repay we're going to leave that to him. That's why we don't have to, to conclude all matters. That's why we don't have to, to, to wring our hands and say, oh no, what are we going to do when we don't see perfect justice carried out right now? We can trust God. In verses 29 and 30, finally, Elihu says that God is perfectly just even when we do not see him handing out immediate consequences even when we don't see him acting instantaneously. It says, when he is quiet, meaning when he's not acting, who can condemn him? When he hides his face, who can behold him, whether it be nation or man? So Elihu has built his case for God's justice. He says that God knows all, sees all. He doesn't need to investigate, doesn't need that forensics team. He doesn't uh, show part, he, told, he shows no partiality to both rich and poor, king and non-king alike and that he will deliver ultimate justice on the final day of judgment. Therefore, in other words, because of all this, when we do not see God bringing immediate consequences to sin or immediate consequences for sinful or evil uh, behavior, we have no grounds for charging God with being unjust. This is an important principle to understand. We have no grounds for charging God with injustice when we don't see him act now. Elihu is saying we can trust God to be perfectly just when he acts uh, immediately or when he chooses not to act immediately and when his justice is delayed. So we want to make sure we, we understand that. When God's justice is delayed, it does not mean that someone has escaped from it. Remember, no escape. There's no escape from God's perfect justice. 
31 through 33, for as anyone said to God, I have borne punishment, I will not offend anymore, teach me what I do not see, if I have done iniquity, I will do it no more. Elihu is not really asking the question, if anyone has ever said this, he's asking Job. He's talking to Job. Job needs to admit that he has spoken wrongly about God. Job should ask for correction and never charge God with being unjust again. So the first part of of verse 33 is a rhetorical question uh, designed to point out the ridiculousness of the alternative to Job not repenting. It says, will he then make repayment to suit you because you reject it? He's saying to Job, really? You, You want God to say he's sorry? You want God to make it up to you because you're rejecting his, his perfect justice? The second part is Elihu telling Job that the decision to repent has to be his. It says, for you must choose and not I. Therefore, declare what you know. And we can finish that by saying, declare what you know to be true. In other words, out with it, Job. You, you've heard all the evidence. You've, you've heard what I've had to say. You know that this is right. Declare it. He concludes with a warning. 34 and 35, men of understanding, his three friends, will say to me, quote, that's in quotes, Job speaks without knowledge, his words are without insight. So Elihu is saying, this is what your friends are accusing you of. And then verse 36, this is Elihu's address to Job if he does not repent. Would that Job were tried to the end, because he answers like wicked men. In other words, here's, here's what your friends are charging against you. If you don't repent, then I hope you're charged to the end, to the uttermost. I hope God throws the book at you. Because nobody gets away with calling God unjust. For he adds rebellion to his sin, he claps his hands among us and multiplies words against God. So on top of accusing God of acting just unjustly, You're going to be guilty of rebellion if you don't repent, Job. You need to turn back. Clap your hands seems to be some kind of uh, rude gesture or disrespectful gesture of of, of rejection. And then multiplies his words against God. Yes, Job did not slip up when he said these things. This wasn't a oops. This wasn't a, oh, I accidentally said that. I didn't mean to. He said it multiple times. He, He was calling for his day in court and demanded that God defend his actions. If he does not repent, he'll only be adding to or multiplying his words against God. So if we had to summarize chapter 34, we'd say this. Elihu invites Job's three friends to think critically about what Job has said, specifically that Job had accused God of being unjust. Elihu makes a strong and forceful declaration about the impossibility of God acting unjustly, and he elaborates on this truth with some examples. God is always perfectly just, even when he remains quiet and does not bring immediate judgment on evil and wickedness. And Elihu calls Job to repent and concludes with a warning. That's what 34 is about. Uh, if, if you can tell by now, we've had a good sampling of Elihu's speeches, and he's strong, and he's direct. But he is a good guy. Remember, he is for Job, not against him. He's not like the other guys, hurling insults at him and just treating him with disrespect. He's he's trying to bring Job to a point of repentance. And it seems as if it's working. It seems as if 
he's gradually and steadily winning Job over. Because if you notice, Job is not responding. Job couldn't remain silent when his three friends were attacking him, but he's just sitting there taking it. I think it's working because unlike his three friends, Elihu isn't lobbing false accusations and personally attacking Job. What he's doing is he's accusing Job, but he's accusing Job of things that he can prove. And he's accusing Job of things that both Elihu and Job know are wrong. And we're going to see that in the end it is effective. Job is going to repent. God's justice is perfect. There's no escape from it. Now as believers, we we know that. And I think we agree with it intellectually. God's, God's justice is perfect. But there may be times when we become impatient. There are times when it seems like God's not acting fast enough in regards to his justice. We think our timing is better than God's timing. And this isn't just a justice thing. This is just an in general thing that that as people, we often get impatient with God's timing. We, We come to him and we say, you know, God, I have this problem and I'm in this financial crisis and I'd really like you to come through for me and provide or, God, I have this stress point at work, and I really, I just want you to make it go away. Or, God, I have this diagnosis, or this disease, or this illness, and I want you to heal me. And we say, we bring all these things to God, and we say, and, and we want it to happen now, God. Now. I know you're God, I know you're perfect, but let me help you out. Your, your timing here just isn't, isn't quite right. But my timing would work much better, so I want you to take care of it. It's a general issue that that we have, and like other areas, when it comes to God's judgment and justice, we bring, we we kind of import this freight of being impatient, and we, we apply it to God's justice as well. For example, why does God allow people to keep performing abortions? I'm sure we've all asked that question at one point. Why? Why doesn't God act? Why doesn't he immediately step in and, and bring judgment and bring that to an end? Well, the answer is because God does not ordinarily act immediately with his justice. That would be extraordinary. Sometimes he does, but not ordinarily. His justice is slow burning. You remember the old classic movies, maybe a western or any kind of classic movie that had a good guy and a bad guy? And the bad guy had bundled or taped together a big bunch of dynamite and they had placed it in a mine shaft or near a dam or, or under some railroad tracks or something like that. And the good guy had to get there before the dynamite exploded. And the dynamite could be detonated in a couple different ways. One way was the wooden box with the old T handle plunger. You just and boom, immediately. But the other way was a fuse. And in a lot of these classic movies, they used the fuse method, and it was surprisingly long. In fact, it was so long that they could stretch this scene out five, seven, ten minutes, and it would just just kind of burn along there like a sparkler uh, snake, and it would eventually get there. But the bad guy, or the good guy, had plenty of time to get there because it was slow burning. It was not immediate. That's how God's justice works. It is slow burning. It's not the T-handle. 
It's not immediate. It's slow burning. The fact that people who commit evil continue to live does not prove that God is unjust. Here's the thing, whether it was a fuse or whether it was a tea handle, they both go boom in the end. They both explode. And that's the way it works with God's justice. Elihu said, of a truth, God will not do wickedly, and the Almighty will not pervert justice. So from a personal standpoint, we should be very glad that God's justice is slow burning like the fuse, and not immediate. We should be glad that God's justice and judgment are not immediate because we may not be here if it was immediate. Have we thought about that? We want to call down God's justice and judgment immediately when we, when we see it in others, but we're, we're a little slower to want that to fall on us. I'm not sure if you've had this experience. I think it's fairly common. But um, oftentimes when you're, when you're growing up and you're going through school, a classmate dies. Uh, I, I had that happen to me. I, we, before we got out of high school, or right around the time of high school graduation, we, we had a classmate that died. Now, I wasn't best friends with him. I feel, my friend circle and his friend circle, if you think about the Venn diagram, they just kind of barely crossed. But I mean, I talked to him. And he uh, was drunk and was driving and got in a wreck and died. That happened. And from everything I knew about this person, the way they talked, the way they acted, by their behavior, there was no indication that they were saved. In fact, I'm pretty sure they weren't. And I've reflected on that at different times in my life. And looking back and I'm thinking, where am I at now? And if God had cut my life short, at 16 or 18. I'm very glad that God's justice is delayed and that he allowed me to live long enough to repent. I think it's a good thing that God's justice is slow burning. One, one of the reasons God's judgment is delayed is to give his image bearers Time to repent. One of our prayers should continually be, thank you, God, for not taking me so young. Thank you for allowing me to live long enough to repent and believe. It's a good thing that it's slow burning. God's judgment is delayed so that his mercy and grace towards sinners can be displayed. God is glorified when those who are once in rebellion now walk in obedience. God is glorified when those who used to take his name in vain now utter and speak his name in praise and reverence. God is glorified when those who use their minds and their bodies to commit sin now use them to serve Christ and his church. God is glorified. We are thankful that his justice is slow burning and that his timing is perfect. So that at the same time, no sin ever escapes the wrath of God. No sin that any person has ever committed ever escapes the wrath and judgment of God. 
Now some of you might be thinking, I know where you're going with this. I, I've heard you preach before. You're going to say, except for believers, right? You're, you're going to say that there's no wrath of God, no punishment for the sin of believers because we believed in Jesus, right? No. By no means. Far be it. The sin of believers is punished. When we put our faith in Christ and, and uh, have our sins forgiven, we do not bypass God's justice. It is inescapable. God's wrath and judgment for our sin is not erased or, or canceled. It's not hidden or minimized in any way. It is placed on someone else. I hope we understand that. The, the wrath of God for our sin is not just crumpled up and thrown in, in the trash can. It has been diverted and placed on Jesus Christ. The punishment for our sin, the wrath that we deserve, has been poured out on Jesus Christ. Listen to the word of God, Romans 3, 23 through 26. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. All sinners deserve God's justice. All sinners, you and I included, deserve God's wrath. But he put forth Jesus as a propitiation by his blood. Propitiation is a big Bible term for appeasing or turning away the wrath of God. Jesus on the cross took the full brunt of the punishment that we deserve, and because he took it, it has been, it's been turned away. The wrath that should go to us has been appeased. It's been satisfied by Jesus' sacrifice to be received by faith. When we turn to Jesus in faith, we repent of our sin, we turn to him, that sacrifice, that payment is applied to us. God accepts the payment of Jesus Christ on our behalf. And he credits the perfect righteousness, his, his lifetime of, of active obedience, that perfect obedience to us. So that when God looks at us, he does not see our sinful selves. He sees the perfect righteousness of Christ and the punishment that we have earned for the sin that we've committed in our life is paid for by Jesus. And in that way, that's why at the very end it says God can be both just and the justifier. He remains a just God. He remains a, a God whose justice is inescapable from. And he justifies or declares righteous those who have put their faith in Christ. It's inescapable. Even the judgment for our sin, it just has been poured out on someone else. That's why we call it the good news. That's why it's the gospel. God permits Jesus to be our substitute and take the wrath that we deserve on himself. Verse 33, For you must choose and not I. Elihu was telling Job, I can't do this for you. I can lead you. I can show you, I can call you to repentance, but you have to do it yourself. And it's the same thing with repentance and belief in the Lord Jesus Christ. No one can do it for you. Each person must place their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. 
Your parents can't do it for you. So kids and, and students in particular, pay attention. If you have been resting on the reputation of belonging to a godly family in a Christian household, that's not going to cut it. I know when other adults look at you, they think, okay, there, there's, a, there's a good kid, there's somebody who's being raised in the faith, but it really doesn't matter what other adults think of you. you it matters what God thinks of you and how God sees you. Every person must place their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. If you have not done that, you must choose, not I. Our adult children can't do it for us. Our, our friends can't do it for us. Our brothers and sisters can't do it for us. We have to do it ourselves. If there is anyone here this morning that has not turned to Jesus Christ in faith, you have a choice. You can either take shelter in Jesus Christ and have him take the, the brunt of God's just judgment for your sin on him and have that count for you, or you can face God's judgment on your own. Because there is no escape from the justice of God. We call it slow burning, but when it finally arrives, it's eternally burning. There's no escape. Do not ignore the Holy Spirit. Romans 10, 17 says, faith comes from hearing. You have heard the word of Christ. Faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. You've heard the word of Christ. Repent and believe in the Lord Jesus. Amen. Father, we thank you for your justice, its perfection, its timing, the inescapability of your justice. We don't want to change it at all. It's perfect. Father, we thank you for sending your son Jesus to be our Savior. We thank you that he bore our sins, that he took the wrath that we deserve on himself. We thank you that you have declared us righteous in your sight because of the blood of Jesus. Father, I ask that you would help us lean into our faith, lean, lean into the, the sacrifice of our Savior. Not trusting at all in our own good works, not trusting on, on anything we've done or said, but simply serving you out of thankfulness and praising you for your salvation. In Jesus' name, amen.